Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it bring it to the bank. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Smith. I'm here to talk about Burnley. You can follow me on Twitter at Jamie Smith Sports. Hi, guys. I'm Jim. Uh, I'm the Leicester City fan for the EPL Roundtable. You can find me on Twitter at Jim Knight Tweets. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today, guys, folks at home. Uh, if I sound a little off or just empirically worse... Uh, my microphone wouldn't connect to my computer today for some reason, so uh, we're just getting that standard input uh, audio on my computer. But uh, I figure we should start off with the transfer window. Of course, deadline day was Friday and largely uneventful, as it seems to have been becoming of late. Uh, but there were some deals that day, obviously some deals throughout January, but it was a slow one on the whole. But I was curious to hear you guys' thoughts on who you think had the best transfer window uh, in January and who had the worst. Yeah, um, it was a strange window, wasn't it? Like, a lot of clubs didn't really do much at all. Um, I think Spurs had quite a good window, actually. I assume you're going to talk about that, Kev. But um, <laughs> I think Ericsson needed to go at that point. It was just they needed to get that deal done. The seems to bring in decent replacements. Maybe they should have got a striker as well, with Kane possibly out for the rest of the season. But I think Spurs pretty much did the business that they needed to do. Um I think Man United actually had quite a good window. If you look at the basics of what they needed, short-term striker cover, more quality in midfield, they've sort of ticked the boxes. Obviously, the Igalo signing is a bit weird, and they've gone from Erling Haaland, ha- Erling Haaland sorry, to Odion Igalo, which is quite a drop in quality. But this is what happens at the end of transfer windows, and that you get desperate, you just have to get someone in. But I think Igalo will probably do okay for them. People are mocking this signing, but he's a player who has scored 15 goals in a Premier League season. He's a Man United fan, so he's going to work. He's absolutely nuts off for that club, give absolutely everything. Um, and I think what United need is some sort of presence and attack at the minute without Rashford. They just don't seem to have any sort of platform for the rest of the team. Um, and so, yeah, I think... The only thing I'd say as a sort of caveat for the Man United one is that they've sort of corrected the error that they made in August and not signing a replacement for Lukaku, letting Sanchez go as well. So they left themselves short up front, which means that they had to sign someone now. So they've sort of corrected that mistake. But I think overall, they've probably done okay. Um, Nobody else really stands out for me as having a particularly good window, but I think there's been some really good value individual signings. Minamino to Liverpool seems like very good cheap deals, sort of player that's going to develop a lot under Jurgen Klopp. 
Uh, Luke Matheson from Rochdale to Wolves, I think he's certainly one to keep an eye on, one for the future, definitely. But I'd be surprised if he doesn't break through and become a Premier League player in the next few years. Sander Burge to Sheffield United, I think it's an absolutely outstanding yeah. signing. I don't really understand how there wasn't more more interest in him. Um, and two lads that went to Brighton, Lamptey from Chelsea, seems like a really talented right back. And Aaron Moy, I think, arguably the bargain of the window. They apparently only paid about £5 million for him. And he's a proven Premier League midfielder. So, I think some good individual deals around, but I don't think any clubs are really going to be celebrating having a brilliant window. Yeah, I'd largely agree with that, um, particularly the point about individual players exciting you more than perhaps one team's haul, if you like. Um, I've still got my reservations about United. Um, it, obviously, I suppose the one thing we have to say at this point, and to caveat, is that particularly new players coming in, you never know how they're going to actually perform. Um, so you can judge a player based on what you've seen in another league or, you know, that kind of anticipation of seeing them. But you're never 100% sure how they're going to transition into a new club. Um, Man United have made a lot better players than Odi Nogalo look a lot worse than he is in reality. So we'll, we'll have to see kind of how he adapts. Um, the one player I was probably most excited about on deadline day was Jared Bowen. Um, when he, he went to West yeah. Ham um, and given that West Ham got Darren Randolph who hasn't got cat flap hands like uh, like the keeper <laughs> that they had to send out on loan then um, I think they've done pretty pretty okay considering then they're, they're not in the best of positions but they've probably done okay to get him in I mean I'm really I'm quite gutted Jared Bowen's gone to West Ham because I was thinking he might be a low-key replacement for James Madison in the summer if um, if Leicester sold Madison to United, which is the kind of rumour. Um, for him moving on, then I thought Bowen at, you know, 20 million or less, whatever they paid for him because of Hull's perilous financial situation, might be quite uh, an interesting buy. He's he's only just turned 23. He's got absolutely bagfuls of goals. Um, and actually, kind of, I suppose one of the more exciting, kind of talented players in the championship. That's that's at least a half decent fee. Normally, you know, a lot of clubs, especially those towards the top of the league, if you went to Brentford and said, "How much do you want for Ollie Watkins?" They just pluck a number out of the yeah, air, and double in it, and quote it to you. Like, all they just don't sell. Like, especially if teams are looking up. Whereas Hull are in that position where they kind of have to sell if the right offer comes around. They're probably they're not going to get promoted. So, you know, it, he was in a, a prime position. And I'm surprised. I know Palace are interested. Uh, and, and obviously West Ham ended up getting there. But I was, yeah, I was a little bit gutted from it. <laughs> perspective because I thought he would be a player that similar to when we bought Madison actually from Norwich um, a player that we could potentially identify as transitioning really well to the Premier League so I'm quite excited to see how he gets on um, although hopefully if, if he's got a relegation release clause or something in his contract and West Ham do go down then maybe we could see what he does for six months and, and nab him um, to, to bring him in if, if Madison moves on but yeah he was the player I was probably most excited about Jamie's touched on a few of the others um, obviously Kev I guess you've got some thoughts on uh, Tottenham's <laughs> new signing, one in particular who uh, had a pretty good debut as debuts go. Yeah, Judson for no. <laughs> of course, it's Steven Bergvine, man of the hour, uh, scored the opening goal against City, and then we ended up uh, winning that one. Um, thought he was a fantastic player at PSV. For those that don't know, Tottenham had already been tracking him for a while, uh, as Pochettino was known to be a fan, and so it's a little funny that. It, he comes in after the Pochettino era has come to a close, but fantastic player, pace for days, stronger than he, stronger than others may think, but he'll commit himself to challenges going back as well today. I think he actually did a really good job 
um, helping cover Tanganga a little bit, who in his own right has been fantastic. Um, but yeah, two-footed can score with both of them today. Just the chest down to the volley was nuts. Um, it was just an absurd debut goal, which I couldn't help but think of uh, the fact that, you know, Rose scored on his debut against Arsenal. Obviously a more impactful goal, but then Rose leaves. Bergwijn comes in and provides us with another fantastic debut goal to remember for quite some time. Uh, yeah, I totally agree, Jamie, that we were, had one of the better windows. I think if we had managed to get a striker in over the line, if we had gotten Piatek, for example, even though I realize he has ups and downs as a player, um, I think then we easily would have just won outright the window, in air quotes. Um, but I do think missing out on a striker target is a problem. And Jose mentioned it in the pre-match press conference, the post-match press conference. Anytime he's near a microphone, he's going to talk about the fact that we still don't have a traditional number nine at the club, which is uh, incredible that, that we've allowed that to happen, that we didn't try to retain Lorente, that you know we didn't give Jensen another chance, but... In the end, you know, it just kind of wound up the way it was. Uh, Manchester United, I, I agree. I did think improved pretty well. Uh, the Agala one is weird. I see your point, Jamie, about him having scored bags of goals. But by the time he left Watford, I think Watford fans were just about ready for him to not be there anymore. Um, but but he, as you mentioned, he is a United fan. So we'll see if he uh, kind of turns it on for them. Uh, but yeah, I, I that Sander Berga move to uh, Sheffield United, I think, caught everybody by surprise. I... I I'm pretty sure Tottenham are going to go back in in the summer to have a look at him, probably Zakaria as well, uh, to fill that defensive midfield void that Dyer was supposed to fill. Um, but yeah, that was just fantastic. Uh, on the other end of the coin was wondering who you thought had the worst windows. Obviously, some clubs just did nothing in January, including Manchester City, who obviously just fell today. Do, do you think the clubs that didn't buy at all are the ones that air quotes lost, or do you think somebody maybe overspent on somebody and in that way perhaps have caused themselves some trouble this January. Yeah, I think January is always tricky because you can get caught overpaying for players. Um, but I was really surprised Chelsea didn't sign anyone. There was yeah. a lot of talk at the start of the window that obviously the transfer ban had been cut on appeal so that they had the chance to then go and buy players. Frank Lampard seemed quite clear that he wanted additions. There's obvious weaknesses in that squad, say, left back, up front, the need quality in those areas. Um, and they just didn't sign anyone, which seemed bizarre. Um, I'm not sure what the deal is there. I don't know if Roman Abramovich has sort of pulled the plug and said that he doesn't want to spend anymore, or if it was a case of they needed to sell to buy and they couldn't move someone like Giroud on. I'm not sure what was going on there because there was reports in the papers over here that they had like 100 million, 150 million to spend. They were linked with players like Jaden Sancho from Borussia Dortmund. So, the, the fact that they've done nothing and that the chase for Champions League qualification looks like it's going to be so tight. Chelsea's form has dipped a bit. Spurs look like they could be on the rise. They've got a bit more momentum. Obviously, fantastic win today. Clubs like Sheffield United aren't even that far behind. So it looks like it's going to be really open, that race for fourth. And it just looked like Chelsea needed something to really kick them on a bit. I think the novelty of relying on all those young players is starting to wear off a bit. Players like Tammy Abraham start the season really well, but the form's dipped a little bit. Mason Mount, you could probably say the same. Um, I don't know if they're being found out or if it's just a case of other clubs adapting to, to those players that they've not really seen before at this level or what. But, yeah, I think Chelsea probably needed to do something. I'm really surprised that they didn't. The team that I was surprised about um, probably most was Bournemouth. They didn't bring anyone in either. And given that their squad is essentially the walking wounded at the moment, um, and has been for most of the season. 
the fact that they are perilously close to getting, well, they are in a relegation battle. They're on 26 points. Um, but, you know, Watford on 23, West Ham on 24, even if you say Norwich are, are really up against it, then there's two very realistic uh, chances that they go down there. The fact that they haven't improved at all strikes me as a bit surprising because we know there is money to spend at Bournemouth, given that they've spent decent amounts on players before. Um, it's not like they're trying to run the club on a shoestring budget and they're kind of, if this is their last season in the Premier League for a little while, they're accepting it and going down with a relatively small wage bill. So given that they've spent money before, maybe that's part of the problem. They don't want to worsen the situation in case they do go down, which I totally understand. But it kind of makes no sense to spend all that money being aspirational about staying up and pushing on towards Europe and stuff as they've done in previous seasons. And then to have a, a tricky time with quite a few players that are out kind of medium to long term um, and then not bring anyone else in at all in the, in the January transfer window seems kind of perplexing and a little bit to me because like I say their, their squad is decimated and, and has been for, for a lot of the campaign um, they must be pretty confident in the resources that they've got being able to keep them up but it just seems strange that they didn't at least kind of make three or four you know even if they're loan signings players that could just act as extra bodies when the season you know really starts to tell because a couple more injuries in that squad and they're already in a bit of trouble and anymore and it'll be it'll be kind of you know it could be absolutely fatal for their chance of staying up which for a club of Bournemouth size is is difficult because they haven't got the biggest infrastructure in the world and you know without those payments from the Premier League TV money they they could potentially struggle given their wage bill so it's quite surprising they didn't at least try and double down a little bit I think. Yeah I was surprised by that as well uh, for me just because we haven't mentioned them and, and they did fill one of their biggest needs uh, in Cenk Tosin, of course, I'm speaking of Crystal Palace, is the missing out on Nathan Ferguson on the last day of the window where they've needed a right-back since Juan Bissaka left for Manchester United in the summer. They didn't sign anyone in the summer. Then they had all month to try to find a right-back so that they don't have to keep rolling out Martin Kelly there. And then they miss out on their main target on the last day because he doesn't pass his medical because of a knee issue um, while still playing for West Brom. It's just that... that they did not win. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, in the, they've left that right back spot still uh, vacant. Uh, and I realize it must be frustrating to finally, you know, seal a deal like that, and then the player have something pop up on the medical. But then do it sooner. <laughs> uh, you've kind of made yourselves the victims there a little bit, in my opinion. But we will move from there on to uh, Chelsea, who, of course, Jamie mentioned there, and not having a particularly good window. Uh, but this time we're going to talk about a goalkeeper, somebody that they have spent a lot of money on, is uh, Kepa Arita Balaga, of course the most expensive goalkeeper in the world at $71 million. He has the worst save percentage in the Premier League this season and was benched yesterday uh, in favor of Caballero. Why do you think he has struggled so much this season and then some could argue last? Uh, well, he's not very good, is he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You want me to expand on that? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't get it. Like, I don't, I didn't watch him an awful lot when he was in Spain, but since he signed for Chelsea, he just doesn't look up to it. Um, I wonder if it's this modern trend where I sound like big Sam Allardyce or someone here, but bloody goalkeepers have to be able to play football with their feet and all this and. There's lots of goalkeepers around who just don't make saves anymore. Like someone like Claudio Bravo at Man City, the sign because he was good with his feet. 
he couldn't keep the ball out of the net. <laughs> That's like the first thing they have to do. Um, obviously, they had to replace Courtois because he made it clear that he wanted to go. His contract situation meant that they had to sell, but to spend, what, twice as much as they got for Courtois on a much worse goalkeeper. Um, yeah, that's pretty terrible. Pretty terrible deal, really. His positioning seems really dodgy. His shot stopping doesn't seem good. I'm not sure what his strengths are, are meant to be as a goalkeeper, really. Um, yeah, really, really funny one. But then the way Caballero played yesterday... He might get straight back in because I don't think Caballero had a good game at all either. No, he really didn't. Um, particularly culpable for the second goal where he goes charging out of his area um, or to the edge of the area, um, and then the ball just comes back in. And as long as Benjamin well hits the hits the target um, from the cross, he's essentially scored because Caballero is so out of position. Um, so as Jamie says, I think Kepa might get straight back in um, on that basis, and maybe. Lampard will view this as a, a kind of warning shot, a one-game kind of warning shot and say, look, we don't want to have to drop you again. Um, but the, the stats don't lie. He has got the worst save percentage in, in the Premier League of any goalkeeper who's played like a reasonable amount of games. Um, and he, as Jamie says, I'm struggling to find kind of redeeming qualities. And for a player that you paid that much money for, like if you pay a world record fee for a player, I don't care what position they're in, that signing has to be a slam dunk to be hailed a success. Like you can't. Kepa was signed for world class goalkeeper money when in reality he was like a development prospect, and you don't want to be spending that kind of money on a development prospect, especially one in goal where their mistakes are arguably more amplified than any other position on the pitch um, because they lead to goals more directly. So it's a strange one. It kind of strikes as a. A kind of a disjointed signing that goes with Chelsea's approach, really, for the last four or five years, maybe even longer than that, really. But kind of give a manager a few quid, let them spend it, sack them, bring someone else in who might not fancy those players, so they get a few more quid, unless it's this window, and then Lampard gets nothing. Um, but you know, they they just seem very. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of joined up thinking going on at Chelsea, and this is kind of coming home to roost now in some of the players that they've brought in, not necessarily fitting into the system that the new coach wants to play, or in this system, you know, being able to catch is 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 part of the front <laughs> Lampard system and keep the ball out the back of the net, which he isn't doing. Um, but it just puts so much pressure when you've got a particularly young side like Chelsea have. They're playing so many of the the youth players kind of by default because they've not been able to bring anyone else in. The last thing you need is to have to score three goals to win a game. And if you've got Kepper in goal and he's making these, you know, he's just. And the thing is, these Premier League teams have got ridiculous analytics departments now. I guess you know at least some of them have, and they'll have they'll have realised this weakness in in what he's doing and. Teams will just take more shots against him because they know that his confidence is on the floor. And it, it'll be interesting to see his reaction off the back of being dropped for that Leicester game because if he gets straight back in, but his confidence is still on the floor, probably even more so after being dropped, it's a really, really difficult situation for Lampard because he's stuck between, you know, two a rock and a hard place, to use an English expression, in the sense that he's got a goalkeeper who should be good based on the money that he's paid and isn't. And his confidence is now shot to pieces. And then Caballero, yeah, he might have played okay against Hull, which is Lampard said was the reason that he put him in against Leicester. But then he goes out and hairs around like a headless chicken and costs them a goal, essentially, um, in that game. And, you know, had it not been for Rudiger's second header, they would have lost that game. So 
Lampard's in a bit of a tricky situation now because he's got two goalkeepers who could be uh, have their confidence on the floor, and he's he's got to try and kind of forge on for this this Champions League place or at least Europa, Europa League spot, which is by no means guaranteed if they're going to keep conceding as many goals as they do. Yeah, just to jump back in on Kepi, point about his mentality is really important. This is the guy who refused to be substituted in oh, yeah. the Cup yeah. yeah. Um that, that was just a massive red flag for me. If you're not even going to do what your manager tells you to do, yeah. I just lost any faith in him then. And I just wonder what his sort of standing is in the dressing room yeah. when he's pulled I mean, a stunt like that. Saru is a bit of a lame duck, I guess, at that point. But you're right in the sense that if you're not willing to follow through with the, the manager's orders and then the manager has to backtrack and say, no, it was a misunderstanding, yeah. it was a misunderstanding. And it's just like... When everyone knows that it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. And you can put that down to youthful exuberance, but you're right. It's a it's a chink in the kind of personality um, spectrum, if you like, that if that's only going to get, wor- get worse as he gets older, and it must be not tricky for Chelsea players, but it must be easy for them to fall into that trap of oh, it doesn't matter because the manager's not going to be here very long. Maybe with Lampard that changes, mm. but any Chelsea player that's been there for the last, you know, five or six years, Willian or, you know, p- players like that that have been around for a few years now, as for Laqueta, and he seems like a good egg, to be fair, but some of the others, if your mentality wanted to fall off a cliff, uh, you know that you're going to outlast your manager and you know there's absolutely nothing that the manager can do about it because they're on, they're on a tightrope from day one. So in reality those kind of acts of ill-discipline. Maybe there's more behind the scenes that we haven't seen. It's only because that one was at Wembley in front of 90,000 people and TV cameras. But Jamie's right. Like that, That's a huge red flag from a personality perspective because mm. you just don't know how he's going to react to further kind of stresses like this. And, you know, if he, if he never gets his confidence back, how long do they keep persisting with him? Because he is going to keep costing them games if, if his form doesn't pick up big time. But the fee that they're paid as well, it means they're kind of stuck with him, doesn't it? Yeah, no one else gonna, is going to pay anything They're not going to take all that money. Yeah. Yeah. You pay all that money and they would have thought they're going to get a goalkeeper for 10 years, maybe 15 years, like a whole career out of him. They, and, like, the money that they paid, he needed, become, yeah. their, he needed to become their David De Gea. And I know De Gea's had his issues at Manchester United, you know, and he's, he's yeah. not for a dodgy fax machine. He could have been in Madrid by now. But the point is that he's grown, particularly when they were really, really awful a couple of seasons ago, he was the only reason they were anything close to a competitive team. And he's grown to at least be one of the most reliable goalkeepers over the long term. Whereas if Kepa doesn't get to that stage, Chelsea is stuck with a lame duck. They're not going to get any money back with him, um, anything like what they played. And if, if, if Abramovich isn't willing to put more money in, what do they do? Where do they turn to? Because Caballero is not the answer, especially not long term. So where do they turn to in the search for a kind of their next great goalkeeper? Because they're you know, they're in a really really difficult situation, especially if Abramovich doesn't want to put more funds in to, to kind of replenish the squad. You know, based on the the wider issues at, at present that are kind of dogging him and his investment in Chelsea. Yeah, totally agree with all of what you guys are saying, um, especially with how much money was spent on him. Although for a while, that seemed like a good idea. So the top five keeper transfers of all time, he's obviously first. But before him, it was Allison to Liverpool, who came into the league and quickly established himself as one of the best keepers in the league. Courtois, when he left to go to Real Madrid, he had his early struggles, but he's finding himself now. Ederson, when he came to the Premier League, immediately kind of uh, established himself. And Gigi Buffon, of course, when he moved to Juventus. So for a while, it seemed like you could just spend the most money on a goalkeeper and that 
basically meant you were getting one of, if not the best goalkeepers. With the kind of failure that this signing has seemingly turned out to be, do you think that could actually bring the goalkeeper market a little bit back to center instead of this like crazy amount that we've seen, especially in the Premier League of late? I, I think it sort of depends. I think they probably paid so much for Kepper in part because Liverpool had paid so much for Allison. That makes sense. It sort of moves the benchmark up. Yeah. Um, but it's quite unusual to see two big fees on a position like goalkeeper in the same summer. Um, so I, I'm not sure if there'll be an effect or not. Um, I think if someone like Jan Oblak was on the market and was to leave Atletico Madrid, that would probably be another world record fee for a goalkeeper. I think his release clause is 100 million euro or more than that. So if anyone was willing to stump up for that, um, and in hindsight, Chelsea probably should have if if they had that sort of money to spend on a goalkeeper, he's the one that should have signed. Um, There's obviously talk about De Gea leaving Man United all the time. Um, that would be a big fee, although Real Madrid seems set with Courtois now, so I'm not sure where he would go. Um, I think it was maybe just a one-off summer where it was a couple of big-name young goalkeepers were on the move, two big clubs with lots of money to spend on a goalkeeper at the same time, sort of inflated the fees a little bit. Um, but then I do think goalkeepers have been kind of undervalued for a long time as well. It seems strange that clubs will happily spend tens of millions for any outfield position but the goalkeeper is arguably the most important player you have because like Jim said if he makes a mistake more often than not it's a goal um, and I think a good goalkeeper can probably be worth a dozen points compared to a mediocre one if you're in the right sort of club so yeah I think it partly depends on goalkeepers that are available the clubs that need to buy goalkeepers I think there will be big goalkeeper moves again but I'm not sure we're going to see the same sort of summer where there's the record goes twice in the same month or whatever it was. The market will stay, will probably be depressed or kind of, as Jamie says, we won't see another record until another Premier League club needs a goalkeeper, essentially, because I don't think any European club, um, even the very, very biggest ones, you know, your Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, I don't think they are in it. Well, I don't think they'd be in a position anytime soon to spend that kind of money on a goalkeeper. So I think it's going to need the likes of Real, uh, of Manchester United, um, or, or if Chelsea decided to, to go again, but again, that's unlikely. So it's probably going to need a club of that ilk with Premier League money to burn through to to be in a position to spend seventy odd million on a goalkeeper because. As Jamie says about Oblak, probably would have been the wiser choice that proven battle-hardened in the Champions League and um, playing in that Aleti defence. You know, you get plenty of shots to save um, with their kind of defensive style. So he was probably the wise choice, but every player in Spain is going to have a ridiculous release clause. And if there's rumours of someone needing a new goalkeeper, you can be sure that every goalkeeper that would be on the transfer list for that buying club will have a new contract or at least an updated release clause. Um, so, yeah, I don't think we'll see another one for a while, but if someone's going to break that record, it's probably going to be a Premier League club. I don't think it's any surprise that, you know, most of that top five list that we've just run through are, are Premier League clubs um, replacing their goalkeepers because they're the ones with the money and they kind of set the agenda, really, for, for goalkeepers recently. Um, so, yeah, I don't think we'll be seeing it broken anytime soon, but to- totally agree with what James says about, about value on goalkeepers. Um, I think they've been underrated for the most part. 
um, for a long, long time. And, you know, one one Kepa doesn't overhaul that fact that if you spend well and spend wisely, you know, it can be as sound an investment as a striker that scores you 20 goals in a season because in terms of points actually contributed at the end of the season they can be just as 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 worthy as as an outfield player that's you know that's winning you three or four games single-handedly really yeah if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door go to blue and use promo code listen to get 50 dollars off your purchase of 500 dollars or more that's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, excellent points there for sure. Um, lastly, I wanted to talk about in this section of the show, uh, Manchester City. So they lose 2-0 today to Tottenham in a very interesting match, especially if you look at uh, expected goals. Um, but uh, also, Tottenham versus Manchester City quickly turning into the VAR derby, but we won't get into that. Um, but who I do want to talk about is Pep Guardiola, who looked disgruntled on the, the pitch almost the entire match again. Um, didn't come out for his post-match interview for darn near an hour. Uh, and earlier this week talked about how if he leaves Manchester City without winning the Champions League, that his legacy there will be a failure, that he'll be viewed as a failure in his stint at Manchester City. Do you agree with that belief that he seems to have instilled in himself? I think I do, but I think it's probably a pressure that he has put on himself. I don't think anyone else has told him that. I don't think Man City have said, we're going to appoint you and we expect you to win the Champions League. Um, I think that's the sort of reputation that he comes with. Um I think it's it's a tricky one to assess him, really, because he's taken City on such highs. But at the end of this season, it's going to be two league titles from four, which isn't that good, is it? If you appoint Pep Guardiola, you almost expect to win the league every year. Um, But what has happened is that he's dragged Liverpool up to that level with them, and City haven't been able to maintain it. So that's sort of impact that he's had on the league, really. He's raised standards to such a high that City now can't live up to them. It was them that set the standards, so it's really interesting. Um, Pep's European record is always going to be up for debate, isn't it? Because can he win it without Leo Messi at Barcelona is what everyone seems to say. They didn't even get to a final um, at Bayern under Guardiola. So it's been a few years for him, really. 
I think there's a lot of talk about him overthinking and trying to be too clever when it comes around to these knockout ties and City sometimes look a bit confused and muddled on those occasions but then you can point to just the randomness of what happened last season when they somehow lost that tie against Tottenham um, you could probably replay that tie nine times out of ten and Man City would come through it so um, I think the bottom line is the Champions League is really hard to win to say something incredibly obvious um, Obviously, you have to be a very good team to win it. Only one team can win it every year. Again, very obvious. But, but Barcelona are the same. They think they should be winning the Champions League every year. You just can't do it. Um, PSG have spent all that money trying to win the Champions League. They haven't done it. So it's really hard to do. Man City don't have any real record of success in Europe. So there's no history to fall back on. There's no, um, There's nothing sort of ingrained in that club that they have the sort of Real Madrid attitude where European dominance is expected. Everyone at the club knows that it's almost their birthright to be competitors in Europe. Man City fans don't really seem bothered about the Champions League. They don't really fill the stadium a lot of the time. The atmosphere is really poor. Guardiola's always talking about empty seats at the Etihad. He's telling them off for booing the UEFA anthem. All these things, I think, kind of have a factor on City's chances in the Champions League. But I think this season now, it's sort of coming together for them to have their best shot at it. They obviously can't win the league now because they're so far behind. Um, so they should put everything into going for the for the Champions League. Laporte is obviously back. He's been a major reason for their relative failure this season. So if he's available for the knockout rounds, their defensive issues will hopefully be lessened. Um, and I think they just need to sort of refocus on that today. Again, it was sort of like the Spurs Champions League tie. You play that match again, if you like run it, ran it through a simulation, City mm. would probably win it nine times out of ten. Yeah. They just missed so many chances and got Jose mourinho at the other end. So I kind of agree when he says he thinks it'll be a failure, but I think it's it's something that he's put on his own head, really. Yeah, it's probably more pressure that he's put on himself, but you do think that Man City's investment um, the way that they laid a platform for him to come in as manager, even you know months and months before he was even there, um, the way that they went about creating their backroom staff and their directors and everything else to bring him in. Um, if he doesn't win the Champions League, I think he will. I think it will be viewed as a disappointment, maybe rather than a failure. Um, but I do think a lot of the pressure, as Jamie says, from Guardiola comes A, from himself and B, from the fact that he hasn't um, he hasn't come close really apart from his time at Barcelona, which will always be used as a stick to beat him with as long as he hasn't won it with someone else. Um, and I think the frustration comes where if he can create a team that's so good. I mean, if you look at Manchester City's performances last season, when they just went toe-to-toe with Liverpool, particularly in the second half of the campaign, were just utterly flawless. Once Liverpool dropped those points over Christmas time in January, they were City were flawless and they just kept them at arm's length the whole way to, to the finale of the season. And the fact that they can't produce those kind of consistent performances in Europe, because if they could, they would have won a Champions League by now. Um it, it, it's, it is a little bit baffling, but it's just the random nature of cup football. And also, maybe it's something to do with, I don't know, maybe it's a chink in Guardiola's approach. Like, how is it that Liverpool can go out and do so well consistently and 
competitions like the Champions League. Um, you know, and they seem to suit knockout football under, particularly under Klopp. Um, and we thought that it was the league that was going to prove the problem with them and consistency. Obviously, they were ridiculously good last year as well. And this year, they've just carried it on to an even more ridiculous degree. Um, but they seem to suit knockout football. You never think Liverpool are out of it. Whereas I tend to look at it now as Manchester City. It's like, well, we know they're the best team in Europe, objectively, but they never seem to get it done. And whether that's in their heads now. Um, and, you know, that's starting to affect the, the way they go about it, and either subconsciously or not. That kind of thing has to start wearing on you over time. And whether that's been transmitted in what Guardiola is saying and the way that he's acting differently on match days or, you know, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but it must be wearing on him. I mean, he, he's looked a broken man at times this season, which is funny to say for a team that are probably comfortably going to finish second and still have a decent shot at winning the Champions League. They'll still be favourites um, with the bookmakers and stuff. So it's a weird, it's a weird dynamic to be in, but he just looks so kind of tired and I guess that's maybe the Guardiola that we've seen actually after a few seasons he does kind of burn himself out um, so maybe he sees this as like one last shot at it and whether or not it'll be there next season is a different story I guess but yeah he's um, I wouldn't be keen to back them anyway for the Champions League this year I think you know I, I think their record speaks for itself and the fact that they have only got to like the round of 16 or the quarter final in the last three four years yeah it doesn't strike me it doesn't fill me with confidence ahead of arguably one of the most difficult ties they could have got in Real Madrid, who are the Champions League club of the last decade. You know, they've been so consistent and they're the exact opposite. They, they could be as bad in, in La Liga as you could possibly want them to be and you still wouldn't back against them to win a Champions League tie against essentially anyone um, because they've just been ridiculously good at raising their game. Yeah, all excellent points. Um, then after today's match... Uh the odds of him getting sacked <laughs> were cut in half. Now, we should base everything on betting lines, of course. And uh, as you mentioned, Jim, uh, there are questions about whether or not he'll be there next year. But surely that's, any idea that he would leave before this season is insane. Also, he is on the record, it should be noted, as saying he'll stay there as long as his contract is, uh, which is through the end of next season. Yeah, he's, he's not going anywhere. And I think if he goes anywhere, it'll be of his choosing uh, to do so. And... It's, it, you know, were it not for Liverpool being so insanely good this year, like the, the, the lack of, they've dropped two points all season. Um, if, if they were having a quote unquote good season instead of a greatest of all time season, then the, the, the complex, uh, the complex of the, the, the kind of Premier League season would look very, very different. Um, and it's, it, I think he's he's maybe struggling because how do you deal with that if you're Guardiola and you're brought up on being the very very best and he prides himself on winning title after title after title anything less than that is seen as a failure and so to come up against this Liverpool juggernaut that are just unstoppable at the moment and they will win the league it's a matter of, of when rather than if now um, I don't know how he squares that in his own head almost and I think that's proven as much of a problem as anything else really Yeah I think Pep's own sort of mentality and the intensity that he brings to that job is starting to tell now. I've, I find it really interesting that he has talked about his contract so much this season and he's insisted that he's going to see it out and he's even hinted that he'd be interested in signing a new deal when it seems obvious to me just watching him watch games mm. that he needs a break. Yeah. I think he's coming to the end of that cycle. Um, I think if you work as hard as Guardiola and think about the game as intensely as he does, and he seems 
so involved in every match, like micromanaging his players almost to a minimal degree during every game. I just think you run out of of energy at some point. And I think we've seen him in his career. He's done sort of three-year spells, hasn't he, at Barcelona and Bayern Munich. This is his fourth year at City. I think the areas where you have managers like Ferguson at United, Wenger at Arsenal, who do 20 years, I think he's gone. Um, I think now you sort of build your team, you get to the height of that team, and then it's very difficult to refresh and renew. It'll be very interesting to see Jurgen Klopp can do that at Liverpool, for example. He's obviously been there a little bit longer than, than Guardiola already. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think Pep might be done this season. Obviously, he went. Sort of he had a um, he had a sabbatical, didn't he? He, he went to yeah. New York stuff after, after Bayern, um, and obviously that I guess is when City were lining up, um, getting their eight, uh, ducks in a row. Um, you know, in, in that in that Pep mould, try and bring him in and stuff and pave the way, but. Like Jamie says, he looks completely frazzled, and the way that football is non-stop intense. Like even you can imagine, even when he gets to the summer, he doesn't relax, he doesn't chill. He, oh. You know, he's the kind of guy that will just be a hundred percent the whole time, and he's only human as much as we'd like to think he is superhuman. He, I don't think he's got the capacity, and that's nothing. That's not. It's nothing against him. It's not a knock. It's just. No human can be that intense for that long without needing a period of complete kind of abstinence almost, like a complete, like, you know, break from everything. And the only way that's going to happen with Guardiola is if he's not managing a football club, because if he is, even if it's a summer break or, you know, when there's another tournament on to take his mind off things, I can imagine that he just can't switch off and come down from that. It will be 100% all the time, whether they're in a Champions League final or whether it's, you know, the first week of the summer break, he'll be thinking about the next or how he wants to change things Mm -hmm. or what players he wants to bring in and everything else that goes with the bureaucracy of managing a big club where you've got to answer to 1,600 people behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I I, I think he's... That's why I was surprised that he's so insistent that he's going to stay there because... If he's like this now and City don't win anything this year, you know, okay, they might win the Carabao Cup. Let's assume they don't win the Champions League, which again, they are favourites. They could easily do. They won't win the Premier League. And the FA Cup, he doesn't really care about either because those domestic trophies are kind of, yeah, whatever. If he doesn't win the Premier League or the Champions League this season, how is he going to be next year when he's had another period of that kind of Mm. intensity build-up and stuff? And I, I think it's almost better that you call it quits at the end of this season as things are, go out relatively, you know, on top, given that he's won a couple of league titles. They've done well, had a lot of silverware over his his tenure, rather than dragging it out for another year, because he's not he's not going to press that reset button without a break from a job and, and two or three months in the season at the end of the season isn't going to do it. Mm. Yeah, I, I think uh you both mentioned how how hard and insane <laughs> insanely hard he works. And thinking about putting in all of that time, like you mentioned, in the offseason, in his personal time, and then falling as rampantly short as they have this season to Liverpool. Like, it's not just that he spends all that time and all that effort. It's like, imagine putting in all that time and effort at a level that has happened very rarely in football in general, and then it not even coming close to being enough. 
Like that, that the, has the, to play a toll. The success will sustain him during that period. And if he if he was winning Champions Leagues, if he was winning league titles, if they were because especially the Champions League, if they win the Champions League this year, I could see him staying because it would be like that breath of fresh air that he needed. But if he doesn't, I don't know how he personally squares that with all the like say all the time all the effort and like the amazon documentary that they did on city um a while back kind of gives you an insight into that he is so intense like you you wouldn't want to go and have dinner with him because all he'd be talking about <laughs> was the minutiae of football the guy i could be wrong i don't know him oh, that sounds him. great you know, i'm sure he's got i'm sure no but i'm sure it sounds great to us but uh, you know, if if you were, he must be so difficult to spend time around with extended periods of because there is. It strikes me as there is literally nothing else to him, and that kind of focus mentality will break you eventually because you don't have anything else. You know, especially if it doesn't come to fruition in the form of trophies. Not that I'm going to turn down a dinner invitation with Pep Guardiola anytime soon. <laughs> in case one comes knocking. Very so we, well, one more point that I'd make on Pep is that. Uh, during this season, his wife's moved back to Spain, hasn't she? Uh, Sick and tired of him talking about football over dinner. Well, exactly. But I, I just wonder what sort of impact that's maybe having on him personally, not having his family around him as well. Is it even harder for him to switch off when his wife's not at home? You know what I mean? It's. I think the situation. I don't think that's the reason they're so far behind Liverpool, but I don't think it's helped. Um, like I say, he seems more frazzled than normal this season. I mean, you're right. If he wins the Champions League, he might go for another year. I don't think they're going to win it. And I, I think it might be this summer that they decide to mutually just break it now. Yeah. I think it's better to end on those terms, I think, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Than just dragging it on. Because that's what happened with Potch. He literally said he wanted to leave. <laughs> and then and he's like, yeah, we'll just try to make it work. He's, he's City's best manager of all time. Like, why would you want to tarnish? Uh, maybe it doesn't mean that much to him, but why would Man City want to tarnish that? You don't. You want to leave out on top, right, or relatively on top, or of your own volition. If it's not on top, you want to go out when you've like the Ferguson thing. Like he went out on a league title, although he didn't might not have left the best kind of legacy for for Moyes and everything else. But he went out on his terms rather than, as you say, Kev, the Poch thing where. Top one of Tottenham's best ever managers ends up being a, a figure of derision and stuff, and yeah. having issues. And you don't want to go out like that, I guess, as a manager. But it's a it's a bitter pill to swallow to kind of admit that you're not going to see out of your contracts. I guess is the flip side of that as well. All right, and we'll go from there into club-specific questions for our guests, Jamie. We'll start off with you and Burnley. The last time, I think it was the last time we had you on, we were talking about the defense and how you had started leaking a little bit at the back, which was surprising. Uh, for a Burnley defense that's been so well-renowned uh, over the last couple of years. Tighten things up a lot of late, though. Just one goal conceded over the last three clean sheets against Manchester United and Arsenal over that period as well. Has anything changed, either tactically or, or, or as a different player come into that back line? Or is this really just like the regression to the mean in terms of your ability to play defense? I, I don't think there's been a, a major change, really. Um, the team's pretty much been the same. I think what hap- what seems to happen with this Burnley team is we have a bad run and they sort of then get themselves together and go, right, we need to sort this out. Then they get the next result and that sort of kicks them on and then we have a good run and then they get a bit complacent and then they start leaking a lot of goals again and then they have to reset again. So I think we're in this cycle at the minute where we have the good result against Leicester. That sort of pushes on, everyone's confident again. Um Defensively, I don't think we're doing anything different. It's the same team, 
set up in the same way. I think we're probably playing with more intensity. Um, there's been too many. My main complaint this season has been too many games where they just don't look like they're running hard enough. They're not pressing hard enough. They're not putting teams under pressure when they're on the ball. It's just been soft goals. Close to half time suggests either fitness or concentration issues. These kind of sloppy things that you don't associate with the Sean Dyche Burnley team. Um, so we seem to have sorted those out, but nothing as simple as like dropping a player. Um, Matt Lawton's coming up right back, but I don't think there's been a huge difference between him and Phil Bardsley all season. It's been whoever's fittest, really. They seem to interchange quite a lot. So, um, I don't think there's been anything major. I think the only thing I would say is that there's a big turning point in the Leicester game, obviously against Jim's lot, when Nick Pope saved the penalty. I think if that penalty goes in, we probably lose the game. Then we've got Man United away next. We quite easily lose that game next. And then you're looking at Burnley being on the edge of the relegation zone and nothing's really changed. So I think big turning points do happen in seasons. And I think Nick Pope saving that penalty from Jamie Vardy was probably one of those because then we turned it around and went on to win the game. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Nick Pope uh, as well. Obviously, he's been very good over the last three weeks, starting with the moment you just mentioned. 16 saves over the last three matches. Not too shabby. Um, obviously, back in the day, there was this huge triple option with the goalkeepers. Obviously, you had brought in Joe Hart, who I don't know if all of us knew how far he had fallen, but it became evident pretty quickly. Uh, but you also had Pope yeah. and Heaton, um, who had dealt with injuries as well. Uh, looking back now, do you think that you've gotten that one right, sticking with Pope, selling Heaton, and just whatever, Joe Hart? Yeah, I think it was a decision that had to be made, certainly for the start of this season. Um, I still think that the club sort of put themselves in a difficult spot by signing Joe Hart when they maybe didn't need to. Um, the actual moment when we signed Hart, we didn't have Pope or Heaton because they were both injured, but was it was only in the short term for Heaton. Time, right? yeah. yeah, so Hart came in and played a couple of the Europa League games when Heaton and Pope both out, but we could have muddled on with what we had. Anders Lindegaard played against Aberdeen, I think, and did okay. Um, so we could have relied on him for a couple of games. Heaton was then going to be fit for the start of the league season, so... I don't think it was necessarily something that we had to do. And then we stuck with Hart for too long last season before making the change and bringing Heaton back in. Um, but yeah, I think Pope's had a strange season, really, because I think he's eighth or ninth clean sheet today. And he's up there with the... Uh, uh, he might be level with Henderson and maybe one behind Allison, or they're all sort of around the same level. But he's also conceded um, the most... I might... I want to say that more than any other goalkeeper because the other teams at the bottom have changed goalkeepers. I'm sure I saw that today. Oh, so interesting. We, yeah, see, yeah. we seem to concede a lot against the big teams. So we might get done three at Chelsea, four against Liverpool. And then when we need to, we'll keep a clean sheet. Um, so he's got this sort of dichotomy in his record this season that's really odd. Um, and this season as well, he's actually made mistakes. Whereas the first season he came in, I don't think there were any goals really where you would say Pope should have saved that, whereas this season they have. So um, it's been a strange season for him, but you're absolutely right. The last three games he's been outstanding. Uh, the last game he was brilliant, man of the match in that one. He was excellent against Man United as well. He didn't really have anything to do in the Arsenal game, but he certainly seems to have 
improved his confidence just off that moment of the penalty save in the last game and he's, he looks like a different goalkeeper now. We've got quite a nice run of games now, so it's a good chance for us to get some points on the board. Hopefully Pope gets a couple of clean sheets because he's playing for the England spot in the Euros this summer, really. Jordan Pickford's mm. had a really bad season. So there's an argument that the gloves are up for grabs and Pope certainly considers himself second choice to Pickford and he'll think that he can force his way in if he ends the season on form. That's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about how close that could be based on how Everton aren't not conceding goals <laughs> this season. Um, coming to you now, Jim, to talk about Leicester. Uh, I'm sure you've seen this floating around, but uh, Vardy and Madison haven't been involved in any of Leicester's last eight goals. You have scored in all of your matches over that period, but have not won all of them, of course. Uh, do you find it, in theory, good news that you're still able to score when your two kind of key attacking players aren't firing, or is it a little bit more concerning than that? A bit of both, I guess. Like You can't be disappointed that just because your main players aren't firing, um, other people are. So you've got the likes of uh, Ricardo Pereira or Harvey Barnes and Ayose Perez stepping up and scoring goals. But it, it surprises me more with Vardy um, than it does with Madison. I think Madison is a real blowing hot and cold kind of player and there is a lot of hype around Madison, especially in the English press, being the kind of next anointed big signing to a likes of Manchester United, for example. I'm going to be honest, if he left this summer and we got Harry Maguire money for him, I wouldn't be super disappointed. Uh, I know his stats suggest that he creates a lot of opportunities or certainly did at the start of the season. Maybe we're seeing the other side of the regression to that at the moment. Um he he goes missing a lot in games and okay fine if he pops up with an assist or a goal everyone forgets about the fact that he's done nothing else for 85 minutes but the go- the games he goes missing in are the games against big teams um he contributes very very little when we're up against it and he seems one of the first players who who drops his head a little bit which is frustrating um as a fan his set piece delivery is pretty average like it's a small sample size but if you look at the free kicks that we've had in in dangerous areas um on the edge of the opposition penalty area one against Aston Villa in the um Carabao Cup second uh, leg um we had one in injury time um kind of perfect position for him to to have a shot on target and then we had two against Chelsea hit the wall all three times he's like our designated set piece guy he hits the first man from corners a lot of the time, and that is really frustrating as well. And Leicester actually are one of the most effective teams from corners this year, which is just even more frustrating because you think, well, if we actually got a decent quality of delivery a bit more consistently, how many more goals could we have scored in that period? Um, that's the way I look at it anyway. Some people would say that you're looking at that as a glass half empty if you've scored six or seven goals from corners and you're moaning about it. Um, but I, I see him you know, week in, week out, and it, it, he he's a very, very talented player, don't get me wrong. And at his age, he has the capacity to improve significantly. Um, he's only 23, and he could be a very, very good player in this time. But I also think that losing him wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing in the world. The Vardy thing is frustrating because he's our main striker and if he doesn't fire, you worry that our form will slip and obviously that's what's happened. Um, We are still winning games occasionally, but we're nowhere near where we were before Christmas. Um, Not that that was ever going to be kept up because we won eight in a row. So that's, you know, Liverpool territory if you're going into winning streaks like that. But um, Vardy's... He doesn't look kind of fit to me at the moment. Um, I know he missed a little bit of time with with a, a strain, um, but 
he just has looked a little bit frazzled to go back to the kind of Guardiola um, analogy. I guess he's looked a little bit worn out and maybe this winter break's coming at exactly the right time for him. Um, obviously, having given up England duty as well, hopefully that will prolong his his um, his opportunities to contribute a little bit more into the second half, you know, the, the, the end of the season. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a sort of, I mean, it's frustrating. It's good that the other guys have stepped up, but certainly on the Madison side, I think, I'm not surprised that he hasn't contributed in the final third because I thought maybe he was overachieving in the first half of the season and maybe we're seeing the, the flip side of that as well on the stats now. Gotcha. Then a player that did uh, help set up some goals, of course, Yuri Tielemans. Uh, you managed to get on loan last January, then signed him permanently in the summer. Uh, just for those who haven't been catching much Leicester, uh, has he been living up to that kind of top billing that he once had as a younger prospect? He had a really, really tough spell um, and he got dropped uh, a few games ago. Um, he, 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 I think he's still a work in progress is, is the tagline that I put on T-Limmons. He is capable of very, very good, like one of the best creative midfielders around on his day in terms of his depth of vision and his passing uh, and the way you can split defences. But... On the other side of that, he is still young and I think he's still adapting. And I think he has, I think he's more of a confidence player than maybe people give him credit for. I think if he has one bad game, it can really leak into the next couple of games. But by on the other side of that, if he has a really good game, I think it spurs him on and he, he goes, he goes kind of into overdrive, if you like. But he went through a really rough patch. Uh, a few weeks ago, but he seems to have recovered a little bit now. Um, he, without Wilfred and Didi, he has to do a little bit more defensive work than perhaps he'd like to, because Wilfred and Didi's a cheat code. He's like playing with two players, um, so it does it does really help you on the defensive side. Um, but Telemans is a fantastic prospect. I'm still amazed that no one paid the forty million. Um, that Monaco wanted for him yeah. having seen him for six months in the Premier League I think the amount of money that's banded around now he he was as close to a sure thing from a Premier League perspective as you were likely to get because you you essentially got him on a trial period like we had him in the Premier League for six months everyone could see what he was doing week in week out and everyone knew his price was 40 million like it seems absolutely bizarre to me that a bigger club than Leicester didn't make a move for him um given how public what he'd done was. But, you know, that's fine by me if if, if we get to sign him up again. But, uh, yeah, he's one of those players that I think could could take another step up from Leicester and go on and do, you know, he's a Champions League calibre player on his day. He just maybe needs to show those days a little bit more often. And then he'll be off and, you know, we'll be on the hunt for the next midfield star because he, I'd be amazed if he saw out the three or four years he's got left with us if he could continue kind of producing on that level. Hmm. Yeah, certainly a supreme talent, but interesting that he's also blown a little hot and cold and it kind of explains some of your recent results if both he and Madison are like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, that'll kind of happen when your two kind of main driving forces in midfield uh, struggles kind of coincide like that. Uh, kind of speaking of players, we'll wrap up with Player Watch. And I just wanted to get a quick takeaway from you guys on your January signings. Uh, well, we only made one, which is one more than I was expecting. So a real Brucey bonus there. Um, yeah, I think we did okay in the end. Um, obviously, you go into a window with lofty ambitions of wanting, I wanted a new right back, arguably a new left back, central midfielder, probably another striker. And it's not realistic, really, for a club like Burnley to go out and buy three, four players, spend 50 million or whatever it would be um, to do that. So I think the business we did do 
was quite good. Um, Josh Brownell's come in from Bristol City. He was their captain, creative midfielder, which is something we lack a little bit. We needed cover in that area as well because Danny Drinkwater went back to um, Chelsea and then went to Villa on loan instead. So sort of one in, one out in midfield, if you look at it that way. Uh, he didn't actually make the squad today, which I haven't seen Sean Dyche's explanation for it, but it seemed a bit strange because no one said that he was injured and we had three defenders on the bench, so we certainly could have cut one of those. Um, but yeah, I think he'll add something a bit different to what we've got. He seems to be more creative than Jack Cork, Ashley Westwood. Um, he was captain at Bristol City, so he's clearly got some leadership skills as well. Scores goals from midfield, seems to have a good shot on him from distance. So that's something that we've been missing as well. We don't score enough goals from midfield. So I think he will be a good signing. Um, the question mark I have is just, is he going to get games? Um, today, we didn't make a substitute. When we won at Man United, we didn't make a substitute. When we beat Leicester, we made one substitute in the third minute of a time. So the last three games, our substitutes combined have played about a minute of action. So when you play for a Sean Dyche team and the 11 doesn't change very often, I just wonder how he's going to get in. Um, I suppose the ideal situation is we win a couple of games, we're nice and safe in mid-table. Maybe there's a few games at the end of the season where we don't really have much to play for and we can put him in then and see what he's all about. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's impossible that he doesn't start a Premier League game before now and the end of the season. Um, I'm quite excited to see what he is about because Bristol City fans seem really upset that he's gone. Um, but yeah, it's a question of whether Dash uses him because we have made quite a few signings. I think the people like Ben Gibson, um, Matty Vidra, who we spent decent money on and have just not really had a chance to impress. So I'm hoping he's not going to be one of those. Uh, the only other business was Nicky Wells going the other way. Um, again, a guy that we brought in never really got a chance. His face didn't seem to fit for whatever reason. Although it was a bit of a punt because he'd never played in the Premier League. He was always championship goal scorer. He spent time alone in the championship, proved that he can do it at that level. So it made sense for him to come back from QPR. He went to Bristol City for a few million to sort of offset the Brownell fee. So I think from a business point of view, a really good deal that we were able to do. I'm still a bit disappointed that we didn't sign a right back because it seems like an obvious weakness in our team. So maybe that's something for the summer. But I think we did what we needed to do. Yeah, Leicester's window was similar to Burnley's actually. Very, very quiet. We made one uh, January signing who was Ryan Bennett from Wolves on loan. Um who I think will play virtually zero football, uh, unless there are a few defensive <laughs> casualties to speak of. Um, I think essentially he acts as cover for uh, Philip Benkovic, who went out on loan to Bristol City. Um, Benkovic has been nowhere near the first team um, for quite a while, so essentially since he came back on loan uh, from Celtic. And I think people, I spoke about it a couple of times when, uh, we were we were previewing the season. I think there was talk that he, you know, he might be the chosen one uh, to replace Maguire because um, Rogers had him at Celtic on loan. Obviously liked him, what liked what he saw, and he's just he's gone off the map. Um, he's barely played. He has had injuries and stuff, but he's obviously not made an impression on on the first team at all. So it made more sense to send him out on loan, I guess. Um, and get another sense back in his cover. So I don't think Ryan Bennett will see see a lot of action uh, unless there's a couple of defensive injuries. But 
he seems pretty solid. You know, I don't think he's great given that Wolves have let him go and they're, you know, a team that are blowers in the league and they obviously don't think he's much of a loss. But I think he's just a spare a spare player, a body, if you like, to, to play if, if we need him, um, if, if there's real injuries at the back. But yeah, I don't think we're likely to see anybody uh, much from him. Um, we had Andy King go out on loan again. He's just doing a, a world tour of loan loan uh, assignments now that he's running down his contract. Um, we can't find anywhere to take him permanently. Rangers sent him back early. So sent him to the, the, the lovely town of Huddersfield this time, a bit closer to home. So let's see if he does any better there than he did at Rangers. Um, but yeah, apart from that, they're the only ones to speak of, really. Um, if we're looking a bit further down the league, um, Kieran Dewsbury Hall uh, went out on loan to Blackpool. He's a really interesting player. He's the He was the captain of the under-23s team um, and he is tipped for big things. Um, in a Leicester shirt so if, if there's anyone following kind of further down the leagues and wants to see a prospect then I think he's the one to keep an eye on um, other than that it's, it was all very very quiet at the King Power I don't think anyone really expected anything but I think there's a few moves muted for the big names but as long as we held on to the likes of Madison and Chilwell who've been linked away for another six months or so then yeah we'll, we'll revisit it in the summer and I think there'll be some more sustained interest for both those guys from from the bigger clubs with uh, with deep pockets. Gotcha. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on both of those players. Well, maybe <laughs> from the sounds of it. But uh, that'll leave us as there's no match previews because we get a nice little break from football for a while unless uh, you have <laughs> FA Cup replays. Whoops. Um, but uh, anyway, if you'd like to tell the folks where they could find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Yeah, well, regular listeners to the podcast will know that I bang on about Dwight McNeil all the time, and I haven't done that. So for the latest hey. Dwight McNeil takes, you'll have to go to my Twitter, which is <laughs> at Jamie Smith. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I've been Jim. I do not bang on around uh, Dwight McNeil, although I do think he's quite a good player. On my Twitter, uh, that's Jim Knight Tweets on Twitter. Um, I'm also in charge of a couple of... Uh, sports betting websites, one being PremierLeaguePress.com, which is football, as the name suggests, uh, and CricketBetting.org, which is cricket, if that is your thing. But yeah, Premier League Press is probably more suitable for this audience. So get yourself over there if you're interested in betting on the Premier League. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. Of course, you can find the show at EPL Roundtable. And uh, you should check out our championship show as well, as that... Uh, race for the top two promotion spots is really heating up at the moment as West Brom and uh, Leeds kind of hit the skids a little bit of late. But anyway, uh, that'll do it for us today. Thanks again to you two for joining us. It was a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.